Well, fantastic. It's great to be here, Jacob and Christopher Weinberg. We have our first guest commentator on our podcast. Um, Chris, how are you, mate? Uh, it's, a, it's a great honour to be a part of this uh, esteemed conversation. Um, I, uh, I've been on the receiving end of plenty of criticism anytime I've offered my thoughts on US politics. So uh, call, call me surprised that I've been given the call up by you guys today. Fantastic. And Jacob, we've discussed um, the US election um, in length, uh, particularly the 2016 election. I think maybe we, we haven't paid as much attention to the post-mortem analysis of the 2020 election, but I'm very eager to understand, um, you know, the broader context in which the election occurred. And um, so some of the topics, uh, I guess, um, listeners that we'll cover today, um, we'll do it in sort of two parts. The first part will focus on a great book that um, Chris uh, read and um, recommended to us, Lucky, um, and that really covers how um, President Joe Biden um, in the United States won the election and how sort of close it was and all the various factors involved. So Chris will sort of walk us through the journey of um, how the, the election transpired what were the key factors, the key turning points? And, uh, you know, of course, we know the outcome, but, you know, what the alternatives might have been. So we'll cover elections, polling and coverage. So with that, Chris, I've, I've got a few questions just to open up the conversations. What were the main campaigns that we needed to uh, pay attention to in the US? And what were the polling? Um, what, what did the polling tell us at the start and then through the process? Yeah, it's interesting, Amal, because we think about um, sort of all of us being in our late 20s, early 30s and coming to, to learn about politics in the USA being the most compelling example of that. Um, and in a way, it's almost felt like every election um, in our lifetimes, or at least since we've known about US politics, has felt like the most important existential election ever. Um, and uh, I think one of the interesting things now that we're a bit removed from 2020 is to try and maybe put in perspective that while there are certainly some very historic and significant components to the 2020 election, not every election has this kind of earth-shattering uniqueness to it like, say, the 2008 election was with Obama becoming the first um, black president or 2016 and the, the turbulence of the campaign. Um, and... Um, and I think that's also reflected, Amal, in the, the literature that comes out of each elections. Um, Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes, they wrote the, um, a similar book uh, about um, the Clinton campaign's failure in 2016 called Shattered. Um, and there's certainly this, this marketplace in American politics for these sort of first drafts of history, um, uh, the, the books that summarise each campaign. Um, I've got uh, Edward Isaac de Vere's Battle for the Soul on my desk to read. Um, as lockdown continues here in Melbourne. Um, and I think this sort of genre of book really came to the fore um, in, uh, in the 90s with Primary Colours, which was written by George Stephanopoulos anonymously as he was continuing to be a part of the Clinton administration. Um, and then really came to the fore in 08, um, Game Change, John Harlem and Mark Halperin. And almost by, by that very nature created the premise that these books need to account for every single pivotal turning point that happened in the election and everything that does happen in an American election 
is deeply consequential. When, if we look at it, the results of the 2020 election, you could have made those predictions about what, you could have come to the conclusion about what the results were with a reasonable accuracy all the way back from 2019 when the primaries began. After the 2016 election, Joe Biden was the departing vice president and ended up winning the Democratic nomination. He was the um, deputy to a very popular incumbent in Barack Obama. So unsurprising in a way that he won the nomination. Um, rock solid sort of establishment Democrat, deep experience, perfect candidate when you're wanting to um, take on an incumbent. Um, Donald Trump, for all of his uniqueness and, um, and whatever other adjectives we can use, incumbent Republican president, strong economic conditions, um, having delivered on some key campaign promises, um, and in a deeply polarised America, proved a formidable candidate to defeat. Um, it was interesting, it's been interesting reflecting on the election. I think a lot of people continued to bring their biases from 2016 into 2020. I didn't think Trump was going to win in 2016, so there's no way he can win in 2020. And then the onset of COVID amplified that because it's the country's a mess, how terrible of a president he is, he's going to get thumped. And people forget the fact that, I think as we're going to talk about later, polarisation is a one hell of a drug in the United States. And that, dare I say, <laughs> trumps anything else because at the end of the day, Donald Trump got 47% of the vote because nearly half the country are Republicans and Joe Biden got 51% of the vote because a tick over half are Democrats or um, independents that favoured um, voting him into office. And while in the aftermath of the election... So, Amal, I think one of the interesting things about the narratives of the 2020 election was how people bought, brought their biases from 2016 back, that they didn't think Trump could win, there was no way he could be president, and how that was going to happen again. He was, um, he was a shambolic president, controversy reigned supreme, um, and then with the onset of the pandemic and the poor American response, okay, this is, this is going to be finally what is going to, finally um, finally um, end him um, and um, I guess maybe based on my experiences of having been there in 2016 witnessing his election victory firsthand um, that maybe I was a bit more cautious in, in that sense um, and um, and the results pan that out and I, and I know we're going to talk about polarization down the line but Americans fundamentally divide themselves into that Republican or Democratic camp. Um, and while Biden did get enough independence and mild-mannered Republicans to vote in his favour, um, on reflection, it's not surprising that it was really difficult for a challenger to defeat an incumbent seeking a second term. Biden wins 51-47, which by historical standards, when an incumbent president's been defeated, is a significant victory, but I think people went in and over the course of the campaign, amplified by the polling that definitely proved misleading, oh, Joe Biden's going to win by double digits, the whole map is going to be blue, 
um, and we're going to know on election night because he's going to win Florida and he's going to win all these other states. Um, and, yeah, and I mean, that, that obviously then informs a lot of the things that then happen after the election in terms of the suspicion, the doubt, um, the prolonged vote count, and then obviously getting to, to the events in, on January 6th where Trump and his most um, passionate supporters refusing to believe and continuing to refuse to believe the legitimacy of the election. So um, obviously this, these kinds of biases and narratives played a key role in 2016, and I think it was interesting to see how they continued in different forms in 2020. And I'm um, just jumping in on that, uh, Chris. There's, there's some interesting things to be said for looking further back in history than to 2016. And if you look at some of the authors who've looked at some of the long-run changes in um, presidential politics, so um, Stephen Skowronek, um, a well-known uh, presidential uh, political scientist in the US, he has traced patterns in presidential elections over you know, the course of the 20th century and the, the early 21st century. And when asked halfway through the Trump term, or coming, I think it was just coming into the primary season, um, he was asked at an LSE lecture um, who was likely to be the Democrats' candidate and what would happen in the election. And he said while he was reluctant to put up a specific candidate, and I'll get to he did pick someone in the end, he said, history says the Democrats will nominate someone who runs as a centrist and is more left-leaning when in office than they were in the campaign, and the person who seems to me to most fit that perspective is Joe Biden. And that, that reminds me, Jacob, of um, a really interesting comment from um, Andrew Yang, one of the less politically professional candidates that ran for the Democratic primary, one of the 29 candidates to run. Um, he made the observation that um, uh, essentially anything Joe Biden believes becomes popular within the Democratic Party. And Biden was a very savvy political operator. He saw the political wins in 2012, came out in favour of gay marriage, and then Obama came out um, in favour of gay marriage a few weeks later. Um, and you look back over the trajectory of Biden's career, he was a reasonably sort of moderate at sometimes conservative Democratic senator in the 70s. Um, so I guess that almost goes to that idea of um, very shrewd political operator. Um, and we've seen that at least um, attempted in part by him since coming into office, embracing some, some quite um, progressive policy prescriptions and, and being very explicit in um, his teaming up with, with Bernie, um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And I guess, Amal, this goes back to one of, I think one of the pivotal points in the campaign was <clears throat> a credit to the Biden team's explicit and strategic embrace of the Sanders program. Um, and forming these sort of unity task forces to come up with sort of a joint policy platform, learning from the mistakes of 2016. But Jacob goes exactly to what you were saying about that idea of in order to win elections, particularly in the United States with their system, you need to run to the middle and win those swing voters and win enough of them and then find a way to pivot then back to your party's base um, and deliver on what your party's passionate about. And I think that's obviously amplified in the US um, more than many other countries in the absence of compulsory voting, which, um, which rewards then um, that passionate base. So, I mean, to sum that up, Chris, in, in a different way, could we 
think about compared to um, mandatory voting as we do um, in Australia, as we vote in Australia, it would be you start the campaign, you fire up your base, you get as much money and uh, support from your caucus mm. um, at the local level, get some sort of name recognition. And then as you progress and get closer to being a nominee, then you swing back to the centre, then you win government and you swing back to your voting base. Is that more or less how it goes? And then you attempt to win the election and the cycle repeats? Yeah, and I think one of the sort of interesting variations that we saw of that over 2019 and 20 was this idea of sort of lanes emerging within the Democratic Party. Um, and, again, it was quite remarkable that there were upwards of 29 candidates. But they essentially categorised themselves into two lanes, the sort of establishment moderate lane and the, the more progressive left-wing lane. Um, uh, and in that were essentially two different theories of the case, the, the Biden perspective, um, other candidates that were in there, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, um, they were of that mindset that, We need to win over some of those swing voters that went from Obama to Trump. That's why we lost in 2016. We've got to peel enough of them back. And if we do that, we should get the job done. The Sanders, Warren, and we see this through politicians like AOC, if we fire up our base, we're going to get in voters also that have never voted before. And uh, and rather than trying to win over voters, if we actually add new voters then that can be an un- unstoppable political coalition. Obviously, um, for Bernie, that didn't come to pass um, in the primaries, which I think reflected that, that sense of pragmatism that Democratic voters had. Um, but it was interesting to, to almost see two different theses on display of different perspectives on how they thought they could go about winning the nomination and then winning the election. I was just wondering, uh, Chris, if you could elaborate a little bit on... Um... I, I was interested in the point about l- looking at those two lanes, but also looking at the way that um, Sanders was courting um, through 2016 primaries and through the, the 2019-2020 primaries, he was courting similar sorts of voters on occasion to Trump, mm. along, along with that kind of youth AOC kind of green yep. left cohort, there was yep. also that working class disaffected out of the system, out of um, sight, out of mind um, you know, the, the group that Hillary referred to in some ways as deplorables, but also the, in, in the flyover states, in yep. inverted commas. Um, and I just wonder if you could speak a little bit to how they fit within the Biden kind of coalition mm-hmm. and also within the Democratic Party, because I think there's been an uneasy relationship there. Yeah. Well, I think one of the problems for Bernie was that a lot of those people that backed him in 2016 are no longer Democrats. They, they back Trump in the election and then they are now Republican voters. Or they might not be Republican voters, but they are Trump voters who will occasionally then vote for other Republicans. Um, and there was a lot of commentary, a lot of overlaying of maps of primaries in states where Bernie won all these votes in all of these non-urban areas that then didn't show up for him in 2020. Well, it's because a whole bunch of them are no longer would no longer call themselves Democrats. They were historical ancestral Democrats work in working class towns, coal mining areas in the Appalachians and those flyover states. Um, and 
So that was one challenge for Bernie. I think the second part of it was that Biden had some working class cred. Um, Scranton Joe, he really leaned into that branding of, of his sort of working class, middle class upbringing and was always a solid union man. So getting those union endorsements early on, like the day after he announced them, Firefighters Union endorsed him because they've been long-time allies. So he's sort of painting himself in those union colours from the outset doesn't give Bernie that in to the same extent. Um, and by that time also, we're seeing sort of this next generation of the Democratic left through AOC and the other members of the squad or um, other sort of um, people seeking the, the Sanders standard in terms of Warren um, as another candidate, um, it was certainly harder for Bernie to, to craft that narrative that he was sort of the singular representative of, of not just the left, but the working class left. Um, and I think one dimension to that that I learned a lot more in 2019-20 was the, um, the racial dynamics that exist in working class America, that what we might think of as a working class American being a white guy who sits at a diner um, and likes his sport on the weekends. There's a lot of working class Americans who are black and brown. Um, and, um, uh, and while Bernie was much more explicit in 2020 about engaging with non-white audiences, um, the, the multiracial nature of the Democratic Party um, makes it very hard for, for particularly a left candidate because those um, those African-American and Latino communities are not as progressive on balance. It just made it much harder for him to, to be competitive to the same extent. Excellent. And so some of the factors um, that we've observed um, from the news, from, from this book, is Joe was confident, he's likeable, um, the pandemic certainly played into it, and uh, there was a range of other sort of racial um, justice sort of causes mm. occurring at the time. What, what other factors do you think accounted for Joe Biden's ability to manoeuvre the situations? You've already spoken about some of the, those demographic shifts, of course, amongst the working class. Can you provide sort of some more colour into the wider context that for our primarily Australian audience? Well, I think one of the things that, that Biden was really unashamed in doing was essentially draping himself in the Obama legacy that he was Obama's VP, um, and that meant you couldn't criticise him um, because um, any time anyone in any of the, the Democratic debates tried to criticise Biden, um, he would then say, well, I was Obama's number two. And he particularly used this to great effect when deflecting criticism from the likes of his now VP, Kamala Harris. There was the, the very notable moment in the middle of 2019 at the first Democratic debate where Harris... Um, took Biden to task um, over some of, his, um, some of his friendships in the Senate, some of his more historic beliefs about things like um, desegregation of schools. Um, Biden was really taken aback by that, and the book really paints a vivid picture of that. Um, and in response, and particularly when the Biden campaign was facing its real moment of reckoning in, in mid-Feb after um, getting thumped in both the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary, is he really leaned into uh, that he was Obama's number two. He is the best candidate to continue 
the work that Obama was doing. Um, and we saw that even tracing back to 2018 when the Democrats retook control of Congress. It was those moderate Democrats who said, we're here to continue Obama's work. We're not here to blow up the system and start afresh and create new big government programs. What we're here to do is to continue the steady progress of the Obama years. And, and Biden, once he really embraced that, it helped that the, the pivotal contest was the South Carolina primary at the end of February, where um, the, the majority of voters uh, are African-American. Um, and again, this is a, a, a case of where Biden's political nous was rewarded, building deep relationships, getting the pivotal endorsement of James Clyburn, the number three in the House, the most senior black member of Congress, um, really paid, showed the dividends of that more personal um, approach that Biden takes that for younger political actors seems like quite a quaint, antiquated way of doing things, that, that you sit in a room and um, have, a, have a drink and maybe have a cigar and talk out your, your political strategies, um, whereas now the, the mindset's more about uh, organising voters, taking to the streets and protests. Um, and I guess that also showed the generational divides that were on display in the Democratic Party. Terrific. So I want to move the discussion on to talking about some of the polling and polling error in the election. So obviously the context of some of this discussion is what happened in 2016, which seems to be the grounding for a lot of discussions of 2020, which is we had Brexit and we had Trump. And in those elections, the polling was well and truly off. Um, it was unclear exactly what was going on. And there was a sense of crisis that um, perhaps they we weren't as accurate in these polls as we used to be. And what does that mean for elections? What does that mean for election coverage and um, for how we should talk about them and how they are used in political environments? So I'm wondering if you can give us a bit of an understanding of how polling shaped the campaign in 2020 and whether or not the polling era was historic, whether or not it lined up with 2016 and whether there's anything we can learn from that. Um, I guess, Jacob, we almost need to go even further back to sort of the, the first Obama election in 2008, which was where we started to see this growth in election modelling, much more rigorous polling analysis. Um, obviously, Nate Silver's 538 blog was sort of the, the pioneer in this space, and there have been other forecasters. Um, and what was evident over 2008 and 2012, those were two pretty good polling cycles. And you look through the suite of history, there have been times in all elections in, in all sorts of parts of the world where the polls have happened to be more accurate or less accurate. That's what happens when you involve random sampling and, and imprecise measures which have margins of error. So part of, I think, the 2016 dynamic was, um, oh, polling's really good and we've got these experts who analyse the polls and they can give us these absolutely perfect predictions. Um, and... Um, the 538 blog says that Hillary's got a 70% chance of winning, so that's, that means she's going to win easily. Um, and, and we can obviously talk about um, uh, uh, the, the foibles that people have when it comes to actually understanding what probability means. But we then had 2018 where the polling was reasonably accurate. It predicted that the Democrats would do well, and they did do well. And then we get to 2020, and it turns out that the polling error was um, at one of the highest levels um, that had ever been seen, 
particularly at the electoral races below the presidential level, which was an interesting sort of um, distinction between the polling era and 2016. So the polling era in, at the presidential level was, was still significant. Biden, I think, going into election day had an average polling lead of around seven or eight points, which is a, a massive win by American standards. And he ended up winning by about four and a bit once all the votes got counted. So still, in the scheme of things, a, a clear win. And when you think about it, seven points down to four points, three-point margin of error, that is kind of typical when you look at the way in which polls are published and they talk around margins of error. But at the congressional level, so at the races for the Senate um, and the House, the polling error was upwards of four or five, and depending on certain races in certain parts of the country was to an even greater extent. Um, races that were thought to maybe be a toss-up ended up becoming almost double-digit Republican victories. Um, and what I think the polling industry has reckoned with in the aftermath of the election is that it's okay to have polling errors periodically if they're happening in either direction, because that's what should happen when you engage in, in random sampling. Some years you'll underestimate the Democrats. Some years you'll underestimate the Republicans. Some years you'll get it bang on. But I think for the polling industry and for the media, it's the consistent trend towards um, underestimating Republican levels of support that has um, provoked a real reckoning in terms of trying to come to terms with um, what's wrong with our polls. And if there is something fundamentally wrong with our polls, then what are we doing with these and how is that having an impact on all of the other aspects of the way in which these elections are, are being conducted? Yeah, and I was thinking about the, the way polls are used during elections as well and um, how it can lead the narratives in the media and also the candidates. And even thinking back to the early days of the Democratic primary when two, two primaries in after New Hampshire and Iowa and, and the polling you know, had kind of, it kind of showed up that Biden was weak and that, you know, was, was Biden going to struggle? Even though Carolina was showing, you know, great guns for him in the polling, um, it, was, it was interesting how, like, the momentum that you can gain when you're going primary by primary is just such a big deal and candidates really rely on that. And I thought it was a good way to think about, like, if the polling is out, if it's, if it's not counting certain voters, and obviously this was the case in 2016, um, famously, the, the number of new voters that were coming out that weren't being reckoned with in polls that weren't coming up in, in, the, regular, in the regular data. Um, so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you think the election was shaped by um, the polling actually being out by several points through a lot of this period. Well, I think it, we can think about it in a couple of different ways, Jacob. Firstly, from sort of the outsider's perspective towards the Biden campaign, it was it, there were moments where it was sort of, you're winning, why aren't you acting like you're winning more? In terms of, Joe, go to some of these more marginal states that it looks like if you have a sweeping victory, you can win as well. And maybe you can get a few more Democrats elected to the Senate um, uh, in states like Iowa was viewed as a competitive state at the presidential and the Senate level. Trump ended up winning by about seven or eight points. So in the scheme of things, we think, okay, Trump didn't magically get 7% more support on election day. He was always going to win that state. So um, there's one lens where particularly the, the activists, those people that are living and breathing politics every day, they're refreshing the 538 page like I was every single day. 
their mindset is the polls then shape their expectations about what's going to happen. So they then feel disappointed when Biden wins the election and the Democrats hold the House because they thought Biden was going to win the election, they were going to expand the majority in the House, they were going to win about five, six, seven new Senate seats and be able to pass all this legislation. But Biden barely wins the Senate. He wins the Senate in the end in January when the two Georgia runoffs occur, which is a, was a significant victory. So the polling inflates your expectations and obviously then shapes the narrative around what comes after the election in terms of oh, how much of a mandate is there. And I mean, that, that, the notion of a mandate is always a, is a mythical thing. Um, and everyone interprets it in different ways. So that's one way in which I think that the misleading polling shapes the coverage. The other way is actually how the campaigns use the polling. Um, and um, again, I noted that the presidential level polling was slightly more accurate than the congressional level polling. The, the, the narrative from Lucky makes clear that the Biden campaign was always confident that they would probably win, but it would be close to the tune that they ended up winning. Uh, and I mean, the, the, <clears throat> the way in which it's conveyed is, is the fact that they sent Biden to Georgia a week before the election because they thought they could win. And uh, a few strategic uses of campaign resources could get them over the line because that's what the polling is used by the campaigns internally. They are doing much more comprehensive polling, using a lot more data in, in analytics to actually see where might the candidate's presence make a difference. And particularly in the context of a pandemic election where Biden, let's face it, wasn't doing a lot of face-to-face -face campaigning, where he then went, that's you're using the candidate for one day in October. You, have, you only have 31 days in October before that election. So the campaigns need to ensure that the data that they're getting in is as accurate as possible because if he's then going to states that he's not competitive in, that's a wasted day, and that might make the difference between winning or losing the election. Yeah, great point, uh, Chris. I, just to add um, a bit more context as well, the 2016 election taught us, uh, and, and, and certainly we can approximate something similar occurred in, in, in Australia um, in terms of people stating one intention, but their actual preference being... Uh, completely different in the confines and privacy of the ballot box. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about how um, that equation comes into polling and how you can, yeah. uh, I guess, account for that? Yeah. Well, that was sort of the main thesis of Mal out of 2016, that there were people who were ashamed to publicly admit that they were Trump supporters. The narrative out of 2020 is a bit different and it's influenced quite a lot by the pandemic. Um, and an interesting thesis that has emerged from polling companies essentially doing autopsies of their, um, their own polling and how off it was. And a credit to those companies, they're essentially saying, we got it wrong. We need to, for the sake of our company's credibility, show that we are uh, improving our methodology. And the interesting conclusion that uh, I, I guess no polling company has said this was the singular reason why our polls were off. But an interesting theory around why, um, why at least the polls were off in, as one of the major factors um, is what's known as partisan non-response bias. The idea that there was a disparity in who was actually picking up the phone to 
complete the poll from the polling company. Um, and this goes to that idea of sort of the lack of social trust that is, is increasingly becoming a feature of conservative politics, mistrust of institutions, particularly of the media amplified by Trump's rhetoric. So that's sort of one component of it. The second component was that um, the thesis goes that Democrats were more compliant with COVID restrictions. They were more likely to be at home following the health orders. And because they were so bored at home, were more likely to pick up the phone when a polling company called and fill out the poll. And also because they hate Trump, they've hated Trump for years, they can't wait to answer a poll to say, I'm going to vote Trump out of office. Meanwhile, the Republicans are not adhering to COVID restrictions to the same extent, outliving their lives. And if they do answer that phone call and it says, hi, we're from the CNN polling company, they're hanging up the phone. And the, the conclusion being that the samples were actually not reflective of the batches or the, the proportions that were actually then going to go vote. Great. Good. Excellent point, Chris. Um, so I think we might take a very short break. And when we come back, we will be talking about uh, the book, Let Them Eat, Tweets, How the Right Rules in an Age of Extreme Inequality. Jacob will be uh, really giving us all of the insights from that excellent book. And um, with that, we will see you very shortly. So we want to turn now to polarisation in America. And I want to start by just looking at one of the arguments put forward to explain it. Um, so for anyone who's paid any attention to America and American politics, the fight between the right and the left in America seems um, to have turned violent, to have turned vicious, to have turned into attacks on the American capital. Um, sides seem to consume different news, move in different circles. Um, and it seems profoundly alarming for someone who doesn't live in the United States. And um, Paul Pearson and Jacob Hacker come at this problem by looking at what actually happened in some of the congressional periods during Trump and how that stacks up with how Republicans operate their politics in particular. And their conclusion is that there is a marriage of organised money and organised outrage that is driving the Republicans, that this is a case of plutocratic populism. So what they talk about is the fact that the first, the first uh, congressional period in the Trump government saw the, some of the least popular policies in American history put through. If you actually look at the direct polling on the tax cuts, 80% of which went to the wealthiest 1% of Americans, if you look at their policies on healthcare, they were some of the least popular policies in the country. And they were some of the policies that were most profoundly um, affecting of rich people. So you look at the period and you say, okay, a number of policies were put through that were strongly in favor of wealthy Americans. Then you look at the fact that half of all political donations came from the top 0.1% in the United States. And one of the conclusions they start to come to is that there is a long-term political problem here, which is that for wealthy people in a democracy to 
have power, to wield power, and to have policies that um, conform to their beliefs without taking over in an autocratic ma uh, manner or authoritarian manner, they need to mobilize enough of the populace to keep their candidates in office in order to enact those policies. So how do they do that? How do we end up with a government that is willing to pass any number of policies that are directly favorable to very wealthy Americans? And what we find is that the Republican Party for many years has been mobilizing through third party organizations, particularly like the NRA, like evangelicals and like conservative media in order to stoke outrage about any number of issues, particularly cultural and social issues in order to stoke populist fears to get their party in government that they can then put forward an uh, administrative agenda that is in their favor. And this is a coalition in a sense, as Hacker and Pearson will put it, that is sometimes uneasy, but is largely about wealthy Americans and wealthy American donors like the Koch brothers being willing to push enormous amounts of money into organizations like the NRA, stoking racial fears, stoking any number of different fears that they can in order to maintain enough of an electoral advantage that they can get the Republicans into office and that they can uh, input their agenda. And I wanted to start with this as one of the explanations because it builds on the kind of inequality of it all that America has moved in the last 30 to 40 years to one of the, the least equal societies in the world. It's closer to feudalism in some ways than earlier American democratic societies in terms of its economic structure. Um, and the alarming change in the amount of wealth going to the top one and 0.1% compared um, to those below and how that distributes power and redistributes power in society. So I'm using that as a bit of a gateway into any number of issues about how polarized America is at the moment and what the actual causes of it are. So I'm going to throw to Mr. Weinberg now to see what his thoughts are on some of the things I just put out there. Well, Jake, I was just going to add to, to your point about sort of the economic inequality. The American political system is also one of the most um, unequal. I mean, the, the language of it being rigged that both Trump and Bernie have used um, since sort of 2016 onwards is readily apparent throughout the entire structure of the system. Um, the, the, the nature of the electoral college, the urban-rural divide, um, all of these kinds of things make it far easier for Republican candidates to win sufficient majorities in the Congress, in the Senate, more often than not in the, um, in the presidency, even if they don't have a majority of the vote um, across the country, it, again, amplifies those points and I guess maybe makes it more possible for that exploitative um, sort of um, campaign finance strategy to be exploited and utilised is that the system can reward those very deliberate strategic approaches where you can, um, with just enough money in one context or in one race, significantly skew the results to then get massive dividends on the policy front down the line. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, money in American politics is enormous and the institutional structures certainly support that. And if you think, I mean, this is an, a problem as, as old as, you know, the Ameri American country, really. Mm. If you think about the original constitutional structure where uh, black people were considered three fifths of a person and didn't have the right to vote, but their um, 
their being in the constitution as three-fifths of a person meant that they were counted towards the number of the population for the purposes of um, the number of candidates that were selected. It's actually mm. how the South and um, candidates like uh, Jefferson were actually elected into the presidency and, and, and actually held power and how slave owners held power because the people who had no right to vote were actually being essentially used and counted um, for the purposes of giving more slaveholding candidates positions. So this is, um, it, in a strange way, a very old problem in the United States. Um, and the concept that I, I don't know if you have the latest numbers, Chris, but the certainly um, it was in the range of 20 seats in Congress just on gerrymandering alone, which is the mm. redistribution of districts in a, to favour um, a particular party. Um, combined with voter suppression tactics that are coming into different states at the moment, it's kind of squeezing out um, Democratic electorates, but particularly Black electorates as well, um, in a way that is, is quite alarming for a democracy and mm. one of the kind of bastions of democracy yeah. in the world. Well, I, I think, Jacob, that reminds me in sort of the mid-2010s, Freedom House, one of those sort of think tanks that tracks the state of democracies globally, actually started doing analysis of the 50 US states. And North Carolina was the first state to be classified as a, as a flawed democracy, that they weren't fully democratic because of their voter suppression policies, because of their use of gerrymandering to target democratic voters which more often than not happen to be non-white voters um and then I, I think your your point Jacob that these problems have existed in the United States from their founding but have come to the fore or even been amplified into the 21st century because of um because of economic forces um because of technology because of culture um there's this this notion in the US um, of the big sort, um, which is a book written by Bill Bishop in the late 90s, early 2000s, that talks about this idea of how um, Americans uh, increasingly want to become or want to be part of their own tribe. Um, and that's not just in a political form, that's in sort of a socio-cultural form, has explained then why Americans are relocating into the big cities or into more rural areas. And that is then exacerbating these political inequities. Um, I mean, the fact that California is, what, the sixth largest economy on the planet and has the same political representation in the Senate as states like Wyoming that have populations comparable to small Australian states. And um, Chris and Jake, so for our listeners who are probably not familiar as, as we are with the concept of a gerrymander, can we can we give give that a bit more of a definition? Jake, Jacob gave a, a high-level definition, yep. but it's essentially um, redrawing the electoral boundaries when you have um, the incumbent power in whether it's at the governor level or whether it's... Um, at the uh, the Senate level, whatever it be, yep. can you can you just um, give us a definitional sort of view of how it actually up operates in practice in yep. the US and why so that's a teacher. Form of corruption potentially? <laughs> as a teacher, Chris, I, I could answer you, but I would uh, I would like to hear Mr. Weinberg's response. Well, I think it, I, I don't know who the quote is attributed to, but it's it, it's the idea that instead of voters picking the politicians, the politicians will pick the voters. 
Um, and this goes back to Elbridge Gerry, um, one of the leading politicians of Massachusetts back when it was a, um, an early state, um, and uh, trying to draw, I think, I, I'm not an absolute scholar on the topic, but I think back then it was around sort of gerrymandering on religious lines in terms of Catholics and Protestants, obviously being one of the big fault lines in a lot of Western democracies early on. Um, and particularly in, in a place like Massachusetts that was having an emerging Catholic population through Italian and Irish migration. Um, he essentially got caught out by a, a local paper for engaging in this gerrymandering but, um, of manipulating the district lines to favour his candidacy. And a cartoon then gets published that makes it look like the district that he's drawn for himself looks like a salamander. Um, this creature. And so then the, the name gets hybridised into the gerrymander. Um, and I think for Australians, we, we find it such a foreign concept because periodically the AEC comes out and says, yep, the division lines have been tweaked slightly. But Australia has an experience of this uh, in the sort of mid to late 20th century in Queensland that um, Joe Bielke-Peterson, the, the Premier of Queensland for a long time, was very explicit in using um, gerrymandering to... Um, inflate the power that the, the nationals had. Um, and, and this continues to be a problem in Australia, even in states like WA that uh, are debating electoral reform now around the disproportionate balance between rural and urban seats. And in the US, it's particularly um, a partisan issue without a centralised electoral commission because it is determined yep. state by state. And it's determined particularly every 10 years on the back of the census. So the 2020 election was, was very important on a state level as well, because who controls the state house then has the capacity to potentially reorganize the um, electorates. And for context, if you think about how you would reorganize an electorate, what they would, would do if you want to favor your side is to, to shape your electorate in a way, such a way that where your opponent wins, they win in enormous majorities. So maybe you'll have a seat that's 95% Democrat and weave the um, Republican seat around it so that you redistribute the other vote. So you can end up with an area that has, say, three seats and a majority of um, Democratic voters, but two of the three seats will be Republican. Yep. So that's kind of how they reshape it. Yeah, packing and cracking, they call it. Pack all your opponents' voters into one electorate where their votes are wasted or break them up so that there's no critical mass of them across a whole lot of electorates. And it is a high-stakes game because the, the 2018 election showed the risks of a Republican gerrymander as Democrats increasingly gained popularity in the suburbs. These electorates that were much more conservatively inclined in the early 2010s actually became electorates that Democrats could win um, in the late 2010s. I think the other factor that's amplified the gerrymandering problem, Jacob, is the, the use of technology and this idea that you can sort of with surgical precision draw on maps and go around little suburbs or communities or particularly in the US, those big sort of outer suburban developments of new plots of housing um, to then go, yep, these voters, we want them here or we want them on the other side. And, um, uh, yeah, so that, that's sort of exacerbated the problem. And I think the last point that I'd make on it is that it's no longer just a partisan uh, issue. It is inherently a racial issue because of the, the, the racial sorting between the parties. Yeah, great, great points, Jacob and, and Chris. And, um, and probably one point worth adding is 
it changes intra-party politics. So the, the extremes start winning the debate within a particular district, electoral district, because now you don't have that balance that you once used to have. You, it's not a, you know, 53-47 split Republican to Democrat anymore. It's, um, it's considerably more than that, which means you are now leaning heavily to the right, which, which allows fringe candidates to actually get up, right? Oh, well, on both parties, I'm up. It, yes, it, yes, yes, yes. You've got you. You can have extreme Republican candidates win in primaries in yes. rural northern Georgia, but yes. you can also have incredibly progressive candidates um, who would be very unhappy with establishment Democratic policy yes. winning in inner city New York, in in LA, in San Francisco, and we're seeing that pan out right now that the Biden administration's challenges of trying to get legislation through Congress that stitches together a coalition of the AOCs of the world who represent inner city passionate progressives and um, members in the house of the suburbs of um, of DC um, who are facing much more competitive elections and again this goes to that 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 tension that exists in US politics as we were talking about in the primaries how do you go about winning a primary election versus how do you go about winning the general election? I want to jump actually to a little bit of uh, a more speculative approach than we've probably taken so far in terms of talking a little bit about solutions to polarisation in that I would be worried if I was an American citizen about how, how the particular extremes seem to be now um, talking in different circles, that there doesn't seem to be a clear debate in the middle the way they used to be. Certainly the um, polarization in Congress has, has shifted. Now there are, there are definitely more extreme and that's been mapped by many academics. Um, but also the fact that the mainstream media has been essentially isolated by Republicans on the back of you know, Trump talking about the lamestream media about fake news and this sense in which those there's different conversations happening on each side. And how do you in a, especially in a country like America, where the whole system was built on the ability to compromise in the middle. And that's how Congress was established. There's all these veto points in the system that are designed to, to stop despotism, to force people to um, converse, to force that sort of compromise. Um, so given that it seems from the outside, like there's this, this divide happening and two different conversations happening, what can be done to start bridging uh, that divide? I think if any of us knew the answer, <laughs> we'd be able to be paid reasonably well over in the US. But uh, I mean, I remember in the aftermath of the 2016 election, someone made the point that um, Democrats need to um, get people to, to literally move, to, to move to different states to make them less polarised. Um, uh, some people have hypothesised that states like Montana and Alaska might be more competitive for Democrats as sort of your cashed up Californians relocate for the, the more serene wildlife um, lifestyle uh, of those states. But um, yeah, without some kind of systematic approach to migration, um, it, it's very hard to see how that kind of polarisation organically dissipates, particularly when you've got these forces in the media that keep exacerbating the problems. And, and the, the problems of the media aren't just 
what we might think of as it's all Fox News's fault. It's actually also about the mainstream media's um, inability to call out uh, or, or to fall into using false equivalencies. Trump said this, Biden said that, when Trump is saying something that's actually quite provocative and dangerous. Um, or um, covering things, again, in that sort of polling horse race mindset where you hype up conflict and competition rather than what the policies should be about. Yeah, but Chris, media corporations have an incentive to provoke. Exactly. It's their business model, um, mm. particularly as they compete with social media platforms and, you know, they're competing for the same the same pie. It might be expanding overall, but, um, you know, essentially the same customer base. Okay, I want to I ask a, a provocative question. Based on our conversation today, um, is a two-party system in the US frame and will it survive the next 100 years? Jake, maybe you can go first. See, I have a fairly firm opinion on this as someone who is an institutionalist uh, in training. Um, I, my, my firm answer would be yes. I like, as in, yes, it will survive. Um, is it fraying? Yes, but I don't uh, see the case for a full-on institutional collapse that would be required in order for it to break down. There have been a number of instances in US history where polarization has gone quite extreme. Um, the Civil War, for example, um, and the two-party system survived, um, which, uh, you know, Suzanne Mettler recently released a book, we'll put it in the show notes, that um, about this exact topic. And, I mean, her argument is that, they, you know, the pressures on the system at the moment through polarisation institutionally and through the courts are as big as they have ever been. But, you know, it's survived some fairly um, incredible um, tests throughout American history. And I don't see the case that it would, it would full-blown collapse. I think that the, um, the way it's set into their politics already, the way that their Congress is set up, the way that the primary structures are set up mm. to, to be a two-party system, in order to collapse that, um, that existing infrastructure and money and backing that is in there, um, one party would have to wholesale collapse. Mm. And my case would be, well, who, who would that be? Or there would have to be extreme money moving, which is the art. This, this is the case I would make for how it might happen, would be extreme money moving from one of the major parties to form another, another base. Um, and as we're seeing with Trump, um, while he might pro about that and there were suggestions about that, um, at the end of the day, who funded his campaign? They got the policies they wanted. Mike Pence was their man. He staffed the White House with their people and, you know, if, if Trump decides that he's going to do this, unless he has their money, it, it, it seemed extremely unlikely given how much money talks. So that's the case for how it might happen if the divide becomes that big. Um, I suspect the divide is more likely to happen on a Republican Party than a Democratic Party, given the polarization internally for, between uh, establishment conservatives who seem to be a dying breed at the moment and Trump conservatives, um, who we shouldn't really call conservatives, we'll call them Trump radicals because they're not conservative in the true sense of the word so my argument would be yes it survives um but i think that there is some some real are some real issues in american democracy at the moment and i think that on all the metrics around the freedom house markers and other 
um, kind of democratic monitors, the voter suppression, um, the extreme inequality, the money in politics, they are backsliding uh, democratically in a pretty severe way. Jacob, I think the, yeah, I think the, the point that came to mind, Amal, at least on what might cause it to happen, is also something, again, about our historical biases of, or our personal biases of understanding American politics. There has not been a, well, every election in our lifetimes has been pretty close by historical standards. Gone are the days where FDR was winning every state on the map. And I think were you to see any kind of full-blown splitting of parties, you would need to see one of the parties lose big and, and have that happen a couple of times over to force that reckoning within that party. So long as American elections remain close enough, the pressure to stay within the tent, I think, will keep those parties together despite how, um, uh, how fractious that can be. I mean... Um, uh, a, a really, really well put quote was actually from AOC. She said, in most other political systems, Joe Biden and I would not be members of the same party. Um, AOC would be part of a, a very progressive party and Biden would probably be the leader of a, a Labour-style party. Um, uh, there was actually a really, um, uh, really clever New York Times quiz that came out in early September by Lee Drutman that um, got people to, to essentially answer one of those sort of voter compass style quizzes, but actually give you six parties that you could end up on, on the political compass. Um, so the three um, uh, left-wing parties, a progressive party, um, sort of the Sanders camp, um, a new liberal party, so you're sort of inner city cosmopolitans, so you're, you're more well-off left-wing voters, um, a Labor Party, a sort of a traditional working class party. So those are the three on the left. Then on the right, you had the Growth and Opportunity Party. So your, your cashed up Republicans, um, sort of that, that old school sort of Mitt Romney style. Um, the Patriot Party, which would be the core essence of the Trump constituency. Um, and then a Christian Conservative Party. But there would be a significant enough constituency for that. But while that form might take place, in decades from now, unless the political systems change where first past the post, primaries and general elections, the party that breaks first is essentially disarming for three or four election cycles. Um, and uh, in the absence of that happening, I think it's, it's unlikely that any of the party, either of the parties is going to significantly break up into smaller constituencies. That's not to say that we won't see further democratic backsliding as Jacob was talking about. That might force a reckoning in a different way that of America looking fundamentally different by the middle of the century. Yeah, which is a great segue. Excellent points, Chris um, and Jake. It's a great segue to really start thinking about America as a project will i mean this is a question that rattles my mind um with a focus i suppose from more a geopolitical perspective with china's rise i mean that's my sort of interest in this space will the united states of america survive i mean what we're seeing in the news is you know floods 
they can't keep the lights on, bridges are decaying, uh, Congress barely seems to function, um, you know, complete chaos in, um, in foreign and defence policy and abruptly um, withdrawing from Afghanistan um, with, with leaving behind a treasure trove of, um, of intelligence and, uh, and gear that can be reverse engineered by um, Western adversaries. So I guess what I, the question I have is, will that model, the United States, um, as, as it currently seems, hold? Will it, um, or will it buckle under the pressure? Chris, well, you think, and Jake. Yeah, well, I think Biden's trying to argue that it can hold as part of his geopolitical strategy to try and maintain faith amongst the, the Western alliance network that democracy is still the way to go and that it can work. Um, I mean, one case in point is that um, he's trying to boost confidence amongst America's allies by getting legislation through the Congress that has a significant investment in addressing climate change because the Western, Alliance, the Western countries are looking for that American commitment to see that America is actually going to follow through because without that, it's very hard to get the Chinas and Indias on board to... Um, uh, agree to more meaningful and aggressive action on emissions. Um, and I guess Biden's also trying to prove to those, those states on the margins or, or those countries on the margins um, that you don't need to go for China, that you can stick with democracies. Democracies can still work and they are still worthwhile. Um, it is still a worthwhile system to, to pursue. Um, but I think the, I think like, I'm concerned about what's going to happen in 2024. There, are, there is a real risk of what we saw on January 6th panning out in a far more concerning manner. Um, and that's not just my sort of over-sensitivity um, based on <laughs> being wrong in predicting elections previously. There was um, very, uh, very significant... Um, reporting out of the Boston Globe prior to the election last year where one of those sort of think tanks did uh, wargaming of the election um, and, and scoping out scenarios of, of what could go wrong. Um, and, and there is a non-zero possibility of the country breaking up in some way, shape or form if uh, Trump was to be successful in um in subverting the Electoral College and, and claiming power. Um, uh, and, and that would be, we, we look at history and that goes back to what happened in Florida in 2000, um, all the way to what we saw in 2020 and what we might see in 2024. This wargaming um, showed that there is a genuine possibility that were we to see some kind of subversion of the election is sort of the term that's now being used predominantly where Essentially, the votes are being thrown out in favour of what the legislature wants um, to do. Um, there is a very real possibility, or at least this wargaming showed, of major democratic states saying, well, we will refuse to participate in, in the country. I mean, we, we've joked about what we've seen from WA being shut off from, from the rest of Australia over the course of the pandemic. But if, if we get to 2024 and... Trump has been successful at subverting the election. What's not to say that a California might say, well, we are, we are breaking away in some way, shape or form. That might seem 
um, that might seem excessive, but there is a non-zero possibility of some kind of fraying of the union if the um, if the aftermath of the next election is even more fraught. I'm going to address Amal's question first, but I want to come back to that because I think there's um, some really interesting scenarios there, and I think we'll, we might wrap on that one um, as well. But the um, in terms of America internationally, I I am a little uh, pessimistic on America's role in the world. I think that their role is going to decline. And I think that the main reason it's going to decline is because um, one of the major parties being the Republicans are looking a bit more insular. They've been freezing out their um, establishment, um, you know, foreign relations bench. They used to have such a deep bench and they always talked about it and they were not Trumpites. They didn't agree with him. Um, I think that they are going to be rem removing themselves slowly from world affairs as China moves into some of the vacuum that they're creating. That being said, they still have an enormous military. They still have some really strong allies. I don't know how far that kind of retreat from foreign affairs will go, but I think to me, Afghanistan is symbolic um, of their kind of, if not their waning power, their waning interest. Um, so I think that they will probably shrink a little bit more before you know, as the Republican Party sorts itself out, because I think it will, I think that they will stabilise into something, whatever it is they're doing right now. Um, the question I had on 2024, because it is a really interesting question on what happens and um, taking up, you know, Hacker and Pearson's theory of this kind of plutocratic populism, has, has the organised outrage got out of hand? Do the wealthy donors who have funded the NRA and evangelicals and conservative media and funded Trump, um, if, if it looks like it's going to split the union and really harm their profits and harm their capacity to continue to legislate tax cuts and anti-union legislation and all sorts of things that benefit um, the wealthy, if they decide that that is something that could happen with a Trump candidature do they throw their money behind another person and if they do does that even matter or is trump such a big figure that he doesn't mm. have their money um because i think that's a scenario that gets really interesting to me which is uh, interesting from a political science perspective to be clear not from a you know health of the universe perspective <laughs> but the you know if if the wealthy split from trump but trump wins anyway um and now you have the republicans actually splitting um what what happens mm. in the election then? Where do they put their money? Mm. Um, you know, that's where I think you can see some some really um, some fascinating things. And I would be lying if I said I had any idea whether <laughs> I could predict that. So I might before I wrap up, I might actually throw to um, throw to Amal. I want to get your thoughts on twenty twenty four. Look at your crystal ball. <laughs> Tell us what you see. Well, so I suppose. Uh, Today, I've played a bit more of a facilitation role for a reason, which is I haven't followed US politics uh, very closely for a long time. Um, and, a, and a big chunk of the reason is I think America is going to be less relevant over the next century. Um, so, so that's probably the main caveat I'll um, attach to my prediction. So 2024... If the scenario that you've just mentioned, um, Jacob, plays out, which is 
Trump is still able to, um, Trump or a Trump-aligned person um, or child um, or someone who even personality-wise is not aligned to Trump but um, with that sentiment um, is able to prey on the same sentiments, I suppose, um, comes through, um, then you might actually have a disintermediation of the money from the populism. So then the question is, um, was the money holding the, the, the populism back, um, you know, or, or is it the other way around? So I think I, I'm, I hasten to make any predictions or I'm just interested in the potential scenarios that might occur. So I think it's, um, you know, will the force remain? So if, if Trump and his forces kind of are swept away and it's a footnote to history, then, then we might safely say uh, 2016 was an anomaly for a variety of reasons. But I think the anxiety that we're all feeling is we, we think it might not. And, um, and that's what's keeping a lot of people up at night um, because we think, uh, as Chris, you pointed out, there might be, there's a non-zero chance, the diplomatic way you put it, there's a non-zero chance that uh, there might be another insurrection-like event. So I think that's probably that when I think about all possible events, I think it's, you know, the past is a guide, but I think it plays out differently. So I'm not going to make a concrete prediction, but I will say a number of those forces may join together in a different way. That's probably what will occur. Um, but irrespective, I'm watching China, guys. Um, I, I'm just interested in their laws. You know, what are they pursuing? Their ge geopolitical ambitions. Um, what's what? What's the global reaction to that? Um, that's sort of what I'm interested in because I'm thinking about the future. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see. I suppose. I mean, I I think the American project, um, it, having lived there in 2012, um, is is likely um, fraying and might even uh, result in some sort of. I don't know about a breakup because that's a bold prediction, mm. but it, it, it might be that the union changes its nature. Have you seen this interstate compact stuff that was floating around last year? So a number of states got together basically and um, were basically collaborating and um, sharing resources to fight COVID and, and the like. So I think, I think that, you know, we should not be surprised um, to see more of that where perhaps you don't rely on the federal government um, like you once used to, um, but it might be a California and a um, um, Washington and um, Oregon, you know, forming some sort of compact and they share X, Y, and Z resources for X period of time. Um, so, yeah, I think it can play out in a number of different ways. I think we should, I don't want to get stuck into kind of the details, but those are the forces and possibilities. And I, f I find that inherently very, very interesting. Well, America, America has always been a study in contradictions. Yes. Um, and and uh, I guess one, one way to think about it going forward is that do, does America want to retreat and, and focus on its own issues or do they still want to be on top and winning? Uh, I mean, there was polling, Jacob, that showed in the Afghanistan withdrawal that um, America wanted to stay because they don't like losing, 
but they also don't want their troops to be in harm's way. Um, and that was just one one um, slice of information that showed how the contradictions that are at the very heart of America will will continue. Do they want to take on China because they've always taken on the bad guys, or do they want to retreat and just focus on their own issues? Chris, I'd pose a slightly different question, um, maybe an orthogonal one, which is, uh, can they? So everyone, yeah. everyone's always talking about should, uh, you know, this policy direction, that policy direction. Well, you know what? Stick any policy. The question is, can you implement it? Mm. Uh, chi- like China is building um, entire train stations in 12 hours. Yeah. You know, they're using drone technology to deliver um, food and whatever to um, COVID patients. I mean, that's physical innovation in the real world and they've been doing yep. it for a very long time and they're super ambitious and they are executing. Even if you d- completely disagree with the policies, you know, wherever you stand on them, the implementation, you know, state capacity is, um, you know, is absolutely rubbish in, in the... Well, look, I don't, I don't want to get into, you know, state capacity because that's a, an entirely different conversation that Jake and I have had. And I'm sure we can talk about it in a future podcast. But essentially, your ability to execute is an important indicator on the health of your um, of your country. And I think America is um, trending in the wrong direction. Yeah. You guys happy to wrap up here? I feel like that's a it's a pretty concrete um, discussion. And look, Chris, we we Jake and I are incredibly grateful for your thoughts. Uh, you, you know, you're a, you're a teacher, um, and, and you you know educate um, our young ones in civics and politics and the importance of playing uh, paying attention to these um, important trends. Jacob, was there anything else that we, we wanted to touch on or we're, we're happy to sign off? I just wanted to sign off on uh, one quick note that uh, Chris might not know, but he, so Chris went to school with a uh, very good friend of mine, which is how, how we first met. And um he went to high school with him and I was first told about Chris by, um, by my friend who said, I've got a classmate, a friend of mine. He's going to be the prime minister of Australia one day. <laughs> so future prime minister, Christopher Weinberg, thank you very much for joining us today and talking about the uh, United States and what happened in the 20th. Thank you. Well, I'm glad the predict I'm glad the podcast is ending on a more optimistic predict- prediction about my future compared to the the decline of the American project. <laughs> we'll have to have you back uh, sometime, Chris. And, uh, until then, goodbye. <laughs>